All right, everyone, welcome to True American. On today's episode, this is going to be a solo episode. This is Alex. Erica's sitting out this one. She's working on some really dope stuff for EV Magazine right now. Uh, but I want to talk about coronavirus. Obviously, coronavirus is the thing that is dominating the news, and it is affecting all of us, mostly because our lives are run by idiots in government, not because the coronavirus is actually a major uh, disease that we need to worry about by any means. And so what I'm hoping to do in this episode is talk to you guys about why you do not need to be worried about your health when it comes to the coronavirus. And hopefully this can put your minds at ease because I know a lot of you are concerned uh, you think, oh, well, these quarantine policies, all these things, they're really dumb, but oh, what if what if I was to catch the disease and be, you know, and it really hurt me? And I just want to put your guys' minds at ease about this and remind you why it is that all these policies are really, really dumb. The thing that really the thing that really gets to me about the way that we've all responded to the coronavirus is that it's this mass emasculation of of young Americans. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a step back to a few days ago. A few days ago, uh, Governor Newsom of California announced a one-month mandatory closure of all quote-unquote non-essential businesses, and this phrase, safe at home, or safer at home, variations of it, um, started going around, and it was a restriction on citizens that were unfortunate enough to live in the state of California. Now, several other mayors and governors have implemented similar plans, and I think they're all misguided because they think that these measures are going to help Americans battle the spread of COVID-19, but they won't. The only thing they will do is they're going to hurt the livelihoods, the careers, and the life plans of millions of people. And I think this is a farce. Young Americans really don't have anything to fear from COVID-19. Older generations of people don't really have that much to fear either. It's true that if you are over the age of 65, you're at increased risk from the illness, but that's true of every flu, and it's true of pretty much every disease. When you get older, things that wouldn't have affected you when you're younger affect you more. So for older people, they don't really have much more to fear from COVID-19 than they had from any other illness because most illnesses just pose a greater threat to them than they would to uh, people who are younger. And if you already have an underlying medical condition, then of course you are going to face greater risk. But I don't know who's surprised by that exactly, and I don't understand why that would be shocking or require these policies. So here's you know the best case scenario. I would think is that we would hope that elderly people would be free to choose to do what they saw fit with regard to COVID-19. Maybe they would choose to stay home because they're worried about their health and more power to them. That's totally fine. But maybe they're willing to risk it and I think they should be free to do so. And I think young people should be free to do so because as we've talked about, they are not at the same amount of risk. But to enforce this blanket quarantine and closure of non-essential businesses for entire month, an entire month is absurd. Plus, how does the government even decide what is a non-essential business? There's a really famous essay called I Pencil, and if you go read that essay, you'll 
understand that it's impossible to separate some businesses as essential versus other ones that are non-essential because they are all interconnected and then interdependent on each other. Okay, but nevertheless, Americans, whether you're young or old, you're being asked to go through this basically imposed home uh, prison sentence solely based on the chance that you might contract an illness. And that's ridiculous. So I really hope, because it would be super ironic and unfortunate, that we don't all catch other illnesses in the meantime, because then that would just make this all silly. Germs come in a ton of varieties, and it would be a huge shame if we all just got like the regular flu, which has the same symptoms for the most part as the COVID-19 virus, while we're all sitting around in isolation, worried about this ooh new fear, scary uh, virus. So, okay, what does this have to do with the emasculation of the American youth? A bunch of politicians, basically all on the left, have called this our, you know, World War II moment for our generation. And it's not the first time that we've heard them say that over the past year, because only a handful of months ago, climate change was going to kill all of us in just 12 years. And AOC put it as climate change was the our generation's World War II. But obviously we don't have to worry about that anymore because we've got COVID-19, which could just kill us all right now. We might not even last a month, so we apparently have to go into quarantine. But let's consider that notion that this is our World War II moment. If that's true, isn't it pretty embarrassing if you compare young Americans today and what we're being asked to do to young Americans who actually had to go fight in World War II? When World War II actually was happening and wasn't a uh, you know convenient thing to compare our current troubles to, young American men went to war to fight against the Nazis. The average age of uh, American GIs on D-Day was 21 years old, all right? And a lot of them were obviously, you know, as young as 18. Many of them weren't even 18. They faked their ages, okay? so they But they stepped up. And then young women in America stepped in to do the jobs that they left behind. And the nation as a whole ended up stepping into this role as a global superpower as a result of it. Today, we face a relatively insignificant pathogen, and our solution is apparently to cower safe at home. So we're told to follow the instructions of pathetic, weak people like Governor Newsom, and I'm embarrassed to be a part of this. And I think we should all be embarrassed. Why shouldn't we young Americans who have nothing to fear from COVID-19 step up and go to work? Why don't we put in the overtime and keep the economy afloat so that our elders can rest assured that if they decide to go home, they you know won't cause any problems, there won't be any unrest? It's ridiculous. If this is supposed to be our World War II, then we should do our part like we mean it. And so I think we should all turn our backs on the weak man's solution. Here's a personal anecdote, or maybe not personal, but a family anecdote. Uh, My dad is uh, in his early 70s. When he was a young child, there were a whole bunch of life-threatening diseases that you could just get and there, there was no cure. So if you were a kid when he was growing up, you might contract polio, you might get smallpox, you might get measles, tuberculosis, 
among other things. And a significant proportion of young children did get those. And if they ended up just scarred or crippled, then they were lucky. Because these deadly diseases were just a part of life. They were challenges that were significant, but in a lot of ways they were really mundane. Because they were commonplace, just as much as, you know, the danger of getting hit by a car or drowning in a swimming pool. So we should face it, the world we live in today is a lot safer than it used to be. The thing is, is that in that dangerous world which my dad grew up in, uh, the world of smallpox, tuberculosis, measles, and polio, there weren't any children being quarantined because their parents were afraid of them contracting these horrible diseases. Nobody thought it was worth the loss of our entire economic system or the adoption of draconian measures to, quote, slow the spread. Instead, strong men and intrepid women stepped up and did what regular humans do, which is they lived their lives, they worked their jobs, they went outside, they met with friends, they raised their families. They were the ones who found cures to these diseases and built a great American society. I think we should be like them. We should move forward, we should defeat the challenges that come our way, and when a weak man comes to us with a coward's solution, we should turn our backs on him. It doesn't matter if he's someone in a position of power, like a politician or whatever, okay? Weak men usually gravitate to those positions so that they can finally get their way. Because when it comes to a competitive setting, with people have to get things done, these weaklings, they're always the ones who lose. Okay, because they're uncompetitive, so they go into politics. They're nothing, and you and I, regular American people, we're something worth fighting for. And yet, for some reason, we've been told to roll over and just go home and sit on our couches and watch Netflix rather than going to work like mature people do. And we've all just been like, oh, I guess we got to do it. I think it's pathetic, and we should do better for ourselves. So at work, I have this uh, newly hired coworker, and when all this stuff was going down uh, at the very beginning, before there was any quarantine or any of that stuff, she shared this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I think I'm, I'm just going to read it in full here. I'm going to repeat this to you guys because I think it's really, really insightful. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say. He said, in one way, we think a great too much. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, well, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. And we have that still. It's perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces 
because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, and even a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. So clearly, past generations have been in our shoes, guys. That's not really up for debate. Nothing about COVID-19 is new. Nothing about it is spectacular or in any way like threatening uh, that has never been seen before. Like I said, people have been in our shoes. The real question is, are we going to follow in their footsteps? So I think we should. And I'm really glad that my coworker had this passage from C.S. Lewis because uh, it just really perfectly summarizes the mood of our nation and I suppose the world right now. And obviously, I hope that, you know, our company and everyone else's businesses are going to survive this, uh, the tyranny of the weak man solution. But I would rather that we all stood strong and came out even stronger. In case you missed C.S. Lewis's ultimate point, I'm going to repeat it. His point is that we're all going to die somehow. So we should live. Young Americans need to realize that the answers to things like COVID-19 lie outside of their front doors. Safe at home is a meaningless phrase. Slow the spread is a meaningless phrase. Flatten the curve is a meaningless phrase. The answer to all these problems is never to hide inside and hope that somebody else will solve the problem for you. I'm not going to be one of the young Americans emasculated by weak men in power, and neither should you. The American economy is like its people. It's as healthy and it's as strong as they decide to be. So you may not die from COVID-19 hiding shut up in your home, but your soul is going to wither, your work ethic is going to die, and when you finally do come back outside, like Bubble Boy, first time he comes out of that bubble, you're going to be a weaker person because you haven't developed any resilience from this situation. You've, uh, you've basically babied yourself and you've allowed other people to tell you that that's okay and it's not okay. So what should you do? You should call your boss. You should tell them that you will work. You should tell them that you do not want to stay at home. You do not want to work from home. You don't want to be a coward. And you should tell them that they also need to be brave and say no to these silly solutions. This is America's time to step up and it's specifically young Americans' time to step up and prove that we deserve our nation's legacy. Because I think we can carry it, and I think that we should. That, that's my feelings, you guys, about everything going on with COVID-19 and the quarantine and all that. You can get into nuanced things about the Constitution and the First Amendment and the freedom to assemble and yada, 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 on and on and on. If you guys are in the medical field, you can, you know, get into these 
persnickety conversations about how, oh, well, actually, technically, if we all don't go outside, then we're not going to spread it. But all that stuff is just getting into the weeds. The point is, is that the United States is not like other countries where the government has total control over what you do. I'm sorry, we're not China, okay? The answer to this problem in America is not going to be solved the way that it is solved in China. It's not going to be solved the way that it is or isn't solved in Italy. It's going to be done the American way, which is superior, which is that free people are going to live free lives and they are going to face the challenges of living with freedom. And this is just one of those things. But in case you're still like laboring under the uh, um, impression that COVID-19 is some super deadly thing, I pulled some numbers together from the past flu seasons on the CDC going back to the 2011-2010 flu season, sorry, 2010-2011 flu season, and compared them to the data on COVID-19 uh, as it is currently. And I want to throw something out there before I dig into this stuff because it, I think it's going to really put your mind at ease and uh, maybe give you a few talking points whenever you have somebody online who's giving you some flack about how you you know, you know shouldn't go even outside or whatever. Um, and that, the point is this. Yes, I'm looking at data on flu seasons that have completed. And yes, COVID-19 is an ongoing uh, outbreak. But from everything I'm seeing, looking at the uh, John Hopkins data, uh, uh, interactive map that's tracking all of the uh, the spread of the virus and the cases and all that. It follows. It's following the same trajectory as your normal flu. It's starting to come out in the news that people have reported symptoms that are consistent with COVID nineteen as far back as January and December. And the flu season, according to the CDC, is tracked from November through late March. Which leads me to believe that even if COVID-19 is still ongoing, it is coming into its late stages, as a matter of fact, and that a lot more people have contracted the disease and either display no symptoms and have had it for a while, or the symptoms are so minor that they didn't even think that, oh, I need to go to the hospital. But we're going to get into that, okay? Because this is a, a topic that I think is really interesting. So... Let's just, and I'm going to put all these charts in the show notes for you guys, but let's just look total deaths, okay, from, and I'm looking at the United States, by the way, so total deaths from the flu going back to 2000, from 2010, 2011 up till modern, all right, so total deaths from the 2010 flu season, 37,000. From the 2011-2012 flu season, 12,000. From 2012-2013, 43,000. From 2013-2014, 38,000. From 2014-2015, 51,000. From 2015-2016, 23,000. From 2016-2017, 38,000. 2017-2018, 61,000. And 2018-2019, uh, 34,000. And with those last two seasons, they're still tallying data. All right, but let's compare that to COVID-19 in the United States, which has a whopping 610. 
Now, I'm not uh, belittling the fact that people have died from this disease. Far from it. But if we were going to go through all of this over a disease that has so uh, such a small impact compared to the standard flu, then I can imagine what we would do during a flu season. I, I mean, really, next year when the normal flu comes around, are we all going to go into lockdown? Are we all going to start wearing hazmat suits and social isolating from each other? It's so ridiculous. So let's, let's look at... Uh, Let's look at medical visits, all right? 2010, 48% of people who displayed symptoms went to the doctor, did a medical visit. Uh, from 2011, 2012, 46%. 2012, 2013, 47%. Then 43%, 47%, 46%, 48%. And then in 2017-2018, 47%. And again, 2018, 2019, 47%. So not even, not even half of the people who contracted the, the flu in any of those years went to see a doctor. Of the people, or are of the people who caught the flu and displayed symptoms, only 1% in 2010, 2011 were hospitalized for any period of time. Only 2% in the following year. 2% again in the following year, 1% in the following year, 2%, 1%, 2%, 2%, 2%, and in 2018-2019, all right? Now, we do not have data on COVID-19, but let's look at the, but we already know it's not significant compared to these diseases, compared to the regular flu, so let's kind of extrapolate here. Obviously, this is not going to reflect what necessarily really happens with the disease, but we can, you know, say, what if it behaved like X, Y, or Z? So, if I compare the uh, COVID-19, okay, to hospitalizations due to the flu in 2014-2015, which had the most hospitalizations of any of the flu seasons that we've discussed here. All right. In the 2014-2015 flu, 590,000 people were hospitalized. That's 2% of the total people who contracted the disease, which was something like 35 million. Okay. And you've all had the flu. So for those of you that are like, oh my God, 590,000, that's like a lot of people. Please don't panic. This is something that happened six years ago. And... Uh, you probably got the flu that year and didn't go to the hospital, so chill, all right? Just calm down. The COVID-19 currently has a case total, so total confirmed cases, of 46,332, according to the John Hopkins interactive map. Okay, so compare that. 590,000 for the flu in 2014-2015, which is the, the most out of that whole decade to 46,332, all right? less It's less than 10% the number of cases as the flu. If 2% of those people were hospitalized, so basically we're saying if COVID-19 behaved exactly like the 2014-2015 flu, if 2% of them were hospitalized, that would be 927 total 
people. Okay? So we really, really need to calm down. Because that's the worst you can expect from it. Unless this, you know, if this was a, a really deadly disease, it first off wouldn't spread as much as it does because that's one of the trade-offs you get with infectious diseases. The more deadly it is, the less infectious it can be because it's self-limiting. It kills its host too quickly for it to spread. In this case, it's so undeadly that people are concerned. You know, you hear Governor Gavin Newsom say that like... Uh, it was like 60% of Californians were going to get it. That's a ton of people. It's more people than, I'm pretty sure it's more people than contracted the flu in any of the years we just discussed. All right. Uh, you can go look up the number for yourself. I don't have it right on hand. Um, but the point is, is that this panic is really overblown. Now, a um, person I went to high school with, I recently was a... Uh, in a conversation with them on Facebook, and I've not really had any conversations with them since, or in a, you know, since high school. But it's one of those things where everyone's stuck at home and they're talking about this, and all of a sudden they're popping up on the message boards. And this person's a nurse, and she's going, Well, you know, we have to do these measures because it'll slow the spread, and slowing the spread is what it's all about. Um, and then she started talking about this whole thing, flattening the curve. If you haven't heard about flattening the curve, there are so many things wrong with it, and we're just going to dive into it right now, all right? The notion of flattening the curve is this idea that your healthcare system has a certain capacity and that the infected population, as time goes on, will follow a bell curve with very few cases at first, and then it will jump up to a giant um, hump with the majority of the cases happening, and then it will over time, peter off to relatively few people who get the, the virus really late on in the, uh, you know, in time compared to everybody else. All right. So there's this thing going around called flatten the curve and what it shows, this will be in the show notes, but just for the sake of description is it shows time on an X axis and then it shows number of patients or number of cases on the Y axis. And then there's a horizontal line, and that line is labeled healthcare system capacity. And there is a red bell curve that spikes, and it goes really high up, and it passes over that horizontal line uh, that says health system capacity. And that bell curve is labeled without protective measures, like quarantining and all that. Then there's a second bell curve, and this one is flatter than the first one, and it's wider, it's spread out over more time, and this hump doesn't quite pass over that horizontal line, and that says with protective measures. So the notion here is that your healthcare system can only, only has capacity for so many cases that they can treat. And if we don't take measures like quarantining and social isolation, then there's going to be this massive flood of cases and it's going to overwhelm the, um, the healthcare system's ability to treat. There's not going to be enough nurses. There's not going to be enough doctors. There's not going to be enough 
hospital beds. There won't be enough medication. There won't be enough this, that, blah, 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 blah. All right. And so what we have to do is slow down the spread, as my nurse uh, uh, former classmate said. And that way we can get through all the cases, but it's going to stay within the healthcare system's ability to manage it. And this whole thing is just such a, a farce. It gets named flatten the curve because the whole notion is that the same number of patients spread out over a longer time. Well, what did we just discuss, you guys? We just talked about the fact that there are nearly 10 times as many cases of the flu at this point every flu season as there are cases of COVID-19 in the United States. We just discussed the fact that less than 50% of the people who displayed symptoms, i.e. they knew they had a cough or a sneeze or a sore throat or runny nose, whatever, um, did not go and seek any medical attention at all. And that only 2% of people ended up being hospitalized as a result of that uh, uh, flu, flu virus. What we didn't discuss is the fact that in each case, the survival rate was above 99%. Um, and the same is true, by the way, of COVID. It's at like 96% or something to that effect. And the only reason that it's any lower, in my opinion, is that they haven't tested enough people to realize how many people have contracted this and gotten over it. And when those numbers finally come out, it's going to reflect the same deal. You're not going to suddenly, I mean, look, you're not going to suddenly find a bunch of dead people. All right, because, you know, we would have noticed a bunch of people just dropping dead. So that's interesting. But this notion of flatten the curve is so ridiculous because they're illustrating this notion that so many patients are going to show up that our healthcare system is going to be overrun. And we already know that the hospitalization rate for a disease like this is 2% of the total cases. And you might be interested in knowing exactly what that looks like. So I'm going to tell you. Let's go back to that 2014-2015 flu, okay? The one that had the most hospitalizations on record. 590,000 people who showed symptoms in 2014-2015 were hospitalized. According to the American Health Association 2018 census, uh, which is a thing that they do periodically, they go around and they, you know, they get a tally. How many... How many nurses, how many doctors, how many of this or that machine, how many ambulances, how many beds, blah, 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 okay? The thing that I hear people talking about the most is this idea that there won't be enough beds to hospitalize all these sick people. And thanks to uh, con laws in a lot of states, that, you know, is potentially true, or, or, or at least, you know, they have laws on record that limit the number of beds, which is just silly, but all that is beside the point, because... According to the American Health Association 2018 census, the number of hospital beds in total in the United States is 924,107. Now, at first blush, when you consider that we have like almost, if not more than 400 million people, that's a really small number. I'm kind of surprised. I'm like, that dang. You like... I hope they don't go do that census for hot or for hotels, man, because I bet you there's so many more for hotels. But with all that being said, the number is 924,107. We'll just say 920,000, okay, for the sake of rounding the number off there. So the highest rate of hospitalizations 
was 590,000, which, you know, is a bit over 50% or so, maybe close to 60% of those beds over the November to March time period. And you don't know how long someone was hospitalized for. Most of these people were probably in the hospital for a day, maybe two, and then they became an outpatient. So, you know, this isn't exactly like, oh my God, at any given moment, 590,000 beds were taken up by flu victims. No, it was dis- it was dispersed over a time period. The duration of stays were not long, yada, yada. Well, let's go back to COVID-19 then, all right? You're about to see where I'm going with this. 46,332 cases in the United States. And if 2% of them needed to be hospitalized, that would be 927 people total hospitalized. Well, 927 beds out of 924,000 beds, for those of you guys who can do fast math in your head, it's 0.1% of the national healthcare capacity, at least in terms of hospital beds. So this notion of flattening the curve is absolutely absurd because this spiky bell curve is never going to happen. This, uh, it's one of the most panic and hysteria inducing pieces of tripe I've ever seen. And of course, you have designers, you know, I'm a designer, so it upsets me to see this. We have designers going all over the place, making these beautiful infographics, never did five seconds of research into what they were actually illustrating, which is an embarrassment on their behalf. So don't let this stuff panic, you guys. I mean, it upsets me to see um, what I consider as our generation, the millennial generation's first chance at finding out just how dumb so many people actually are out there that because a grand total of like 10 people in the entire world said they needed to panic and go stock up on toilet paper and groceries and work from home and not go outside, they all do it. It's absolutely ridiculous. I'm going to return back to my initial starting point with this and then wrap up the episode, which is you guys need to step up You need to join me in stepping up and saying, this is dumb. I'm not staying at home for this nonsense. I'm getting out there. I'm going to go do my job and I'm going to live my life and I'm not going to let a silly, inconsequential disease that is no more deadly, in fact, pales in comparison to the normal flu, stop me from living my life. All right, you guys, Uh, if you enjoy True American episodes, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. Put it in the comments. Shoot us a message at info.trueamerican at gmail.com or message us on Facebook at True American on our page or uh, send us a message, like, comment, and share on all this stuff on Instagram at your true American. Also, you can catch us now on Spotify. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Don't panic, just get to work. <laughs>